Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Dr. Anita Heiss is an author, a poet, and a satirist. She's written 16 books, including her memoir, Am I Black Enough For You? She's currently a lifetime ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation and divides her time between writing her own books, public speaking, emceeing, managing the Epic Good Foundation, and also being a creative disruptor. During this episode, we unpack Anita's creative writing process, how she has dealt with criticism, some of it which has been pretty harsh, and why we need to encourage Indigenous communities to continue to share their stories across Australia. Anita reminds us that words are powerful and that we get a choice about which words we use every single day. Anita is energetic, she's uplifting, and she's not afraid to have the conversations that we really need to hear. So sit back and enjoy this episode with Anita Heiss. Dr. Anita Heiss, it's so, um, such an honour to have you in the studio. Thanks for having me. I want to start because you are, you're an author, a poet, a satirist. I mean, that's an easier word to, to write than to say. You've written 16 books. Tell me a little bit about or describe to me that creative process when you go, look, I'm about to write another book. What do you do? What's your process in that, that um, moment? Good, good question. Hard question because it took me some time to de- to develop a process that works absolutely for me now for every book. So basically, the first thing is you have a concept or an idea. So I'm not, I'm never short of an idea. I've got a couple sitting here today, but uh, I'm I'm what you call a plotter. There are two types of writers. There are plotters and pansters. So a plotter uh, maps the entire book out. They probably like they're like that in their in their life, very organised and scheduled and so forth. And a pantser will fly by the seat of their pants and have you know the big vision, whereas a plotter will see all the detail and so forth. So I have an idea. I will I know what's going to happen at the end of my book pretty much before I even start to sit down to write. I will do a synopsis of maybe um, th- between 300 and 1,000 words. And now, because I've done so many books, I can sell an idea for a contract for a book now just based on the on the concept of the synopsis. So I knock out a synopsis, which will have all the major plot points, the main characters um, and the themes of the novel, let's say. And then what I do next is I will do... A character, a character breakdown for the main characters. What are their quirks, their eccentricities, their personalities? Um, do they only wear jeans and black tops or do they wear bright colours all the time? So I know exactly what this character is like every day before before I start to write the story about them. So I do that um, and then I embark on my research. So I spend more time researching a book than I do writing because I can write very fast and because I'm a plotter and I've mapped the book out, by the time I sit down, 
I just need to write. So I have a novel set in Paris and a novel set in uh, Manhattan. So I went to those cities, as you can imagine, very difficult to research. I had to... You have to do the research, right? That's croissants and wine. No, and... I, I put on about 5Ks, <laughs> 5 kilos every book. So if my character eats cheesecake, as she did in, in, in Manhattan Dreaming, I eat cheesecake. Interestingly, the, the novel before that, my character was in her 30s and were turning 30, so she partied a lot and I got... I got comments by people in, in interviews about how much she drank. And I said, well, you know, she was 30, so she, you know, had a gin and tonic out of a vase. Like, you've not done that before. <laughs> but I was really conscious of the next novel about the character being quite health conscious. So she was a gym, she went to the gym, but she liked eating cheesecake. So um, I get into character. I'm a method writer, so I do whatever my character does. Um, although one of my characters did astral travelling and had sex while she was astral travelling. I didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's on the bucket list. <laughs> but, you know, I, th- there is some fiction to the, into a fictional work. Yeah. So um, I get into character. I do lots of research. Um, I, I have a novel set in Brisbane called Titters and the characters lived in uh, Kangaroo Point, The Gap, West End, Upper Brookfield and Paddington. So I I lived in those suburbs for a week at a time. I rented apartments and stayed with friends. I walked around. I asked locals, where's the best coffee? And I immersed immersed myself in those settings. So I'm huge on research because I think readers are smart enough to know if you have been to their suburb or their town, if you're writing about them. So I research and then I sit down and by then I've got you know, thousands of words of notes and scenes set in cafes and restaurants and I use... I generally use um, real places because I want to support local business and so forth. And then I just sit down to write so I can knock over seventy or 80,000 words in a couple of months and that's my first draft. So basically, whether it's a kid's novel or an adult's novel, it's a very similar, sim- similar formula. I love that. It's almost like you're crea- crafting those experiences for your life as much as you're writing the books. Well, I can see, see it's meta ta- in this. And it's all tax deductible. <laughs> and interestingly, with Titters, the novel, the, the character that lived in West End, I um, had stayed in this apartment. It was a friend's apartment. I'd stayed there for um, a number of times and I always felt at peace there. And then I went back having my midlife crisis and did research and I cre- and I set one of the characters' lives in this apartment, which I now live in, which I've now bought. And so I've sort of create, created, I've become that character, except she had this amazing lover who was a chef, which I don't have. <laughs> Just putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> Applications are yeah, yes, accepted. Yes, yes. No. <laughs> we are interviewing. No. <laughs> Joking. Yeah. I love that. And I mean, 16 books. And when you do that method of really deep research, um, deep knowledge and, and and plotting it out, you're you're living this book from the moment that concept is starting to create. Um, I can imagine. I imagine each one of those look, feels like your baby, like they're part of you. Is there is there any? And this might be a hard one to answer. Is there any of those babies that um, that you like a little bit more? Well, I'm told parents don't have favourites, <laughs> so like I don't I said. have I don't have children, <laughs> and it's interesting because I think lots of writers, particularly who don't have children do talk about it as, you know, conceiving an idea and then going through this X amount of months or years for some people to to nurture and grow the egg, you know, and then we 
the book comes out and it's a birth. And I remember putting on Facebook years ago, you know, uh, I've given birth to X amount of books and I don't have any stretch marks or mm-hmm. something. And mothers getting going, getting up in arms about the fact that I had no idea what birthing was really like. All very serious. Um, every book nearly every book has has had a purpose. So I do, all my characters have Indigenous, strong, mainly strong Indigenous women characters. You know, I have a memoir about identity that I, that's taught in schools. I have a novel on the stolen generation. So every single one of them has something particular that's quite important to me and what I believe to be, you know, um, working towards social change. I... I wrote a book, my latest adult novel is probably one of my most important personally. It's set in Cowra during where my mother was born on the Aboriginal mission there during World War II because there was a prisoner of war camp in Cowra, Japanese prisoner of war camp. And lots of Australians don't know about that, but Cowra now is the home to the World Peace Bell for the reconciliation it's created with Japan. And for me, I, I, I was in Pearl Harbour and I was watching the Japanese... Um, at Pearl Harbor and thinking to myself how I was wondering what what they were thinking, looking at this very American version of their shared history. Mm. And most of the tourists at Pearl Harbor are American, uh, sorry, are Japanese. And I was thinking, oh my goodness. And it made me think about uh, Australians at war, Aboriginal people at war that have not been recognised, the fact that we had a Japanese POW camp in Cowra and that none of the history around that actually documented that 4.5 miles from that POW camp was another camp where my mother was born living under the Act of Protection with less rights than the POWs. Mm-hmm. And so... I thought I have to write this story and for me, I wrote that novel really for the people of Kaura and I've just returned from Japan where there's a sister school, Kaura High has a sister school in, in uh, Seikei High School and I went and visited there last week and it's just extraordinary the relationships between the, the two countries that have been, that have grown out of a time when the Japanese were known, regarded as the most hated group of people on the planet during World War II in a little country town in New South Wales. Um, and I'm inspired by that. And I want the world to know that Cowra is a fantastic place, even though they haven't necessarily nurtured the same reconciliation with their own, uh, the own Aboriginal community there. Um, there's much to be proud of in that town and that doesn't, have very much there except for this history and obviously, you know, beautiful people and so forth. So that's really important to me. And if my mother, and it's a documented history for my family as well. Yeah, as you say, these are the stories that we don't hear Mm. otherwise unless they kind of get documented. Mm. Um, How much is your kind of family, when you start to describe Mm. it, but how much has your family history really informed your career, your passion and, and your work even now? Wow, that's a good question too. Well, in terms of my literary work, they're involved in some way, shape or form, whether it's I have a kid's novel about a young boy, Matt, Matty, who's mad about the rabbitos and he lives in Sydney and that's loosely based on my nephew. But the morals to those stories are, there's always a moral and the morals are around, you know, you should be nice to your sister and so forth. Um, so they, they're, there are elements of members of my family in, in most books, they my family read the drafts. Nothing goes into print without them, if, if they're mentioned or there's elements of them mentioned without them saying it. So for me, for any, for me as a, as a writer, regardless of cultural heritage, it's important that the product on the shelf 
is empowering to the people that it's for and, and about. So if, it's, if it disempowers people in any way, then it, to me it's absolutely worthless. So I have a very strict methodology in terms of feedback and, and from community, from individuals and so forth. Um, I have a memoir called Am I Black Enough For You? And so that also became a documented work for my family and they all had opportunities to read um, those pages as well. In fact, anybody in real life who was mentioned in that had an opportunity to read that. So I think there were about 70 people that I sent permissions out for. And lots of people don't do that. Mm. But I, not everybody, like if you were going to write a book tomorrow um, and or if I wrote a book and just decided I was going to put in our fantastic engineer here, you know, there's no, he mightn't want to be in my book. So I think it's important to that whoever you're writing about has a sense of ownership over that material as well. So I just like I'm just a girl from the boobs, brought up uh, brought up between a jail and a sewage works and an industrial estate in Sydney, um, who liked to write long letters when I was young and became a, an author. And so my family are very oh they're not that they don't need to remind me of you know ground me because I'm fairly grounded anyway. Um, but they, they're very, very supportive. So I wouldn't be able to do what I do now without their support. I wouldn't want to do it. It's such an honour for them um, to be involved and be asked. I think, as you say, it's not um, plenty of authors don't always do that, um, but it means they're really part of those works. That, that book you mentioned, Am I Black Enough For You? What was some of the feedback that you got from those who are in the novel? Well, that's a memoir, so it's non-fiction. Um, it's interesting because I went for the 70 people I sent it out to, I, the, you know, I made it quite formal and said, this is what I'm doing. This is where it's published. Here's the excerpt that you're mentioned in. If you are, if you don't want to be in it, that's fine. Let me know. If I don't hear from you, I'll assume that you don't want to be in it and we'll remove it. Every single person wrote back to myself and all the publishers saying, absolutely love to be in it and great work. So because for that particular work, um, which was aimed at breaking down stereotypes of, you know, what it means to be an Aboriginal particularly woman in the 21st century in Such Australia. A powerful title. Like you can, I can yes. imagine the So it's like you can look that. like this and have blue eyes and get I say to go into classrooms and I say to female students, I get foils and I shop at Tiffany's and I wear lipstick and it's not about being black or white or rich or poor. It's about being a chick, you know, and let's talk about what connects us as being the same rather than always looking at what makes us different. So if we look, we like to do this, this and this, and then we can be comfortable in the conversation and then we can enjoy and celebrate what makes us different. And so I just took a different approach to that. So um, I think... People were, I've, I've had lots of um, parents email me about their children saying, you know, thank you for this work because it helps them break down, give them the words rather than for potentially boys using their fists to deal with particularly comments about you're not black enough or you're not, you're half this or you're part that and, and, ex- and having to explain to other people who you are on a daily basis when non-Indigenous people don't have to do that. Words are so powerful and they're such a big part of our identity, the words we use to describe ourselves, people around us, where we're from. Um, with a, I don't know whether that piece or whether there's another piece that you've written, has there been a moment when even when, as you've finished writing it, you go, this is going to this is gonna hit some chords, it's going to, few people might push back on it, but it's also mm. going to be the right conversations for us to That's have. That's a good question also. Um, I think that memoir was probably the one, although I didn't realise the extent of um, 
I didn't realise it was going to be as conf- confrontational. I had no idea it was going to be as confrontational as it as it turned out to be, that it would cause as much controversy as it did at the time. I just wanted to write something that teachers could use in the classroom because I'm in classrooms all around the country and I, I hear questions that you know, just astound me, not only from students, but from teachers as well. And I thought if I just wrote something, and it's very, very simple text for teachers to be able to teach in the classroom, then maybe Australia, Australia's understanding and therefore uh, capacity to build relationships with Indigenous Australians would be would be greater. And of course, I, you know, ended up on the front page of, you know, the media and my Amazon page being trashed because... It was confrontational, even though that question, am I black enough for you, is a rhetorical question and I didn't expect people to email me and answer it. And so and I was, so I would wake up, I, for some time I woke up every day, and particularly as part of a court case attached to that book, um, just with race hate. What if I turned up at your book launch and said this and, and you're this, this, and, and I... It, it saddened me and frightened me that I that absolute strangers could feel com- could be comfortable speaking to someone like that that they didn't even know. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about the power of words, it it makes me think about um, social media and how debilitating that can be. Um, I'm glass half full. I try to find positive in every negative. I try to for my own mental health. Really. Mm-hmm. It's not because I'm, well, not that I'm not concerned about other people's mental health, but I think for my own getting through every day, feeling like there is a point, I try to be really positive. And I, sometimes I just think I want to shut down every account, every platform I've got, because people do choose, it is a choice we make, choose to use language to absolutely devastate, debilitate um quite often complete strangers and there's no it's easy that you know easy to be a keyboard warrior mm-hmm. when you're not responsible for for what for the impact of what you do and I think I mean I don't have the answers to that I think we can only all be responsible for our own behavior but the power of language can be used absolutely for good but and and just at the other end of the spectrum for the negative how did you? deal with that? Like what were some of the ways or what helped you through keep turning up? Because I can imagine there were moments where you just go, look, I'm going to a cave. I'd forget mm. this. <laughs> I don't deserve yeah. any of this. Mm. Um, and when I talk to people, I think it's so important for them to keep putting their work out there, to keep like whatever their part of the conversation is, to keep putting a voice to that. But sometimes the fear of doing that is what if I get criticism? Mm. Um and then it's a whole nother ball, no, mm. a whole nother game when you mm. actually then see the criticism and it sounds mm. like you there were mornings mm. where you were getting that mm. quite personal and, mm. and quite atrociously. What are the ways that you, yeah, mm. got Well, I mean, that? I don't mind people criticising the way I write. I'm quite happy for someone to say this is written really badly and I'm the first one to say I have a very small vocab and I'm not the, I will never win a Miles Franklin Award um, and I'm quite, I'm, I know that so I don't stress about that and the, the feedback I got wasn't criticism about my work, it was about me as a human being by people who didn't know me. So that I find problematic. I'm surrounded by really strong, amazing, capable people. I have a very strong family um, and I think at one point... I rec- uh, post having a bodyguard at one event, 
Mm. You know, I laugh about it now because I felt like Whitney Houston. <laughs> but um, it wasn't funny at the time, at that time when that happened. But um, I feel comfortable knowing or believing that I'm not going to be physically hurt as far as I know and that and in terms of the verbal abuse and that sort of, you know, psychological assault that they do on social media or, or emailing me or so forth, um, that really can't hurt me in any way, shape or form now. And I know that there's no, that I can't really have any more trauma around that because I've sort of reached the peak of that and and come through a very dark period of time. And I sat, I sat down one day and I was thinking to myself, you know, nobody's going to shoot me. Nobody's going to shoot me. I'm, I'm quite, I'm physically safe. Mm. And, and I, at the end of the day, that's really all that matters. And then, of course, you always have people saying, oh, don't worry about it, don't take any notice of it, which is an easy thing to say when you're not the target. Mm. But um, you do see people just go, and there's been studies, I've been in research studies about um, online and social, you know, social media um, uh, trolling and things like that. And people do completely just log out of life. And um, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. And um, yeah, and yes, then they win. So, yeah, exactly. Mm. There is there is more and more that needs to be mm. called out around that. For sure. And I th- and it's like it's kind of like you doing your podcast. You you make a choice about what you put to air. I make a choice about what I put into print. Um, as a as a as a broadcaster, or a podcaster, or a writer, you have no control over once it goes live. You don't know how people are going to listen, hear that because we all have filters and somebody might hear something with a tone and somebody else doesn't and I put something on the page and it might be, a, you know, a love story and somebody reads it as a political piece and you have no control and that's where the fun begins, I guess. Emotions run high, right? Oh, scary, yes. <laughs> might be fuel for the fodder for the next, maybe, <laughs> the next maybe. book along the way. We, you mentioned, and I love that story around um, Karen, as you say, sort of touch on a few of these stories that we don't often hear. When it comes to um, stories around Indigenous culture here in Australia, what are the stories that you wish we, we heard more often? Oh, dear. Do you know, when I was coming here today, I was thinking, you know, there's a protest in Brisbane tomorrow about Elijah Doherty. There's there've been protests all around the country about a young Aboriginal boy in WA who was pretty much run down, and and the the murderer got three years jail for that. And and I think we the stories are are around the stories of Aboriginal people who die at the hands of non-Indigenous people constantly, whether it's black deaths in custody, and nobody gets justice. And those stories don't appear in primetime news uh, while the death of non-Indigenous people abroad will have, wherever, that will have the Prime Minister speaking about it. And it's not all, all death is death and all lives matter. Um, but we live in a country where the story, the ongoing story since the point of first contact, the ongoing story of the decimation of Aboriginal people at the hands of non-Aboriginal Australians um, goes untold and it's forgotten really quickly. And Henry Reynolds has written a, a, a book called, you know, The Forgotten Wars because we, we choose, country chooses to forget the warfare that happened on, on this soil here and yet we do Anzac Day and we, we remember everything else and Aboriginal people are told, oh, get over it, it was a long time ago. And, and I think the stories that we have to take to the streets to make people hear um, are the stories that need to be heard. And, yes, I write 
fun, entertaining stories that I that with social justice woven through them. But there's far more important things happening every single day, stories happening all around this country that I think Australians choose to ignore and just hope they'll go away. And I guess, what, you know, I'm almost going, I... What are the ways that we can continue those as well? I um, We had a number of years living up in Darwin. Both my kids were born up in Darwin. Um, uh, we've got an office not far from where we're recording the studio today. And when we started that office, we actually had a welcome to country. So some local, um, Aunty Flo, a local Indigenous lady, came in and spoke about the land that the office is on and, and the, you know, the leadership that we're now taking on board. And it was such a powerful experience. But it's also... Um, one that I want my kids to kind of be be a part of. Um, and I'm seeing more and more of the, you know, the, mm. the importance of that acknowledgement of country whenever we're gathering people together. Are there other ways that, you know, people listening going, yes, I understand I want to be part of that mm. commentary, but I'm not really sure mm. what I can do in my little piece of the world? I mean, people can participate in many ways and, and not that I want to flog books, but people need to read and they need to not expect Aboriginal people to have the answers to every single question. Like, you know, re- the reconciliation process in this country is not for us. It's for non-Aboriginal Australians to be able to engage and participate and there's a wealth of ways to do that. So... Um, uh, my, the easiest thing to do is to jump on the Reconciliation Australia website and have a look at what's going on around the country and, you know, f- you know, do something practical. Read, educate yourself, attend a film, attend a lecture. There's things going on all the time. F- learn who the local uh, traditional owners are of the country where you are and understand why Welcome to Country is important. And it, it's, not, it's, not, it's really not as difficult as people think it is. And I think it's the fear of, I don't know where to start. But there, if you're on social media, f- social media, follow accounts like Indigenous X on Twitter, and you'll it's, it's a rotational curated. Uh, um, it's curated from, by somebody different every week, so there's different opinions, and uh, that account put, disseminates a whole range of information across this entire Australian landscape. So there are very simple things. Watch NITV. Listen to Karma, or if you're in Sydney, Corey Radio ninety three point seven. Um, Murray FM here in Brisbane. There's Indigenous radio all around the country. So engage with media. Watch our media for a change. So support and, yes, support and, and learn, yeah. absorb. Because every, every story has two sides to it. And I say, obviously the way in which the colonisers in any country remember and record history is it's significantly different to the way in which the colonised record history. And if you and I came back here tomorrow and we recorded the history of today's session, we, there are facts we can't change. We're in this studio, we're in Newstead, we're fabulous facts. No, it's <laughs> what day is it? It's I don't even know. Oh, Saturday, whatever day, Tuesday. Tuesday. <laughs> but these are facts we can't change But and we've... We're both part of this moment, but the way in which we remember this moment is what makes it subjective. Mm. And history is subjective, or the retelling of history is subjective. So I think if people, every time they're reading something or hearing a news story, particularly about a different part of their normal community, just remember that that story is being told through someone's lens. And on my lens is obviously, you know, an Indigenous woman, city slicker, single, you know, educated. I have a lens. I know everything I, everything I read, everything I do, everything I write is filtered through that lens. And we're, we all do that. 
And that's okay. Just yeah, it's be okay. aware of those Yeah, lenses. we just need to yeah. be aware of it. And it's why we need to read widely. Mm. How important is um, satire or, or humour? Um, to be breaking down some of that cynicism? How important has that been for you? It's a good question. I was, I, I, I mean, I try to use satire when I can. I think um, it's a good way to ease people into a conversation before you punch them in the guts. But, um, and I think laughter and humour has sustained Aboriginal people over centuries um, when, particularly in moments of adversity, but I was in Tokyo last week. The same question was given to my colleague, Dr Sandra Phillips, to the students when they were unpacking a satirical piece by Melissa Lukashenko. And she said to the students, do you think... And they're learning about Aboriginal Australia for the first time. And they're from Malaysia and Nepal and the Philippines from all around the world. And she said, you know, do you think satire works? And it was a really mixed response from the students because if you get that it's a joke, then... It works, but if you don't understand the intention of that humour, you could you you could quite well um, it could backfire. So I think you just have to be very very careful. And of course, it's always like who's telling the joke. Hmm. So it's so, you know. So um, I, I like I want to make people laugh. I want to make people laugh, but I want want to make people think. I do think it's possible to do both. Get them to connection through yeah, connect through, through humour, but then that's or even sometimes the laughter is a nervous laughter because we cringe at what we realise is oh, I've said that I've done that I've thought that I'm one of those people. Um, I think there's I think it's easier to maintain an audience with satire when you're talking about serious issues than just straight out lecturing where you, where people may be borderline, you may lose them. But it, it's, it's a skill. I'm not saying I'm good at it, but it, it's a craft, I think, like anything. Yeah, yeah, as you say, being mindful of who's saying it, how it's delivered, the intention yep. behind it. And who the audience is. Yeah. I think for any 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 address or any writing, you audience matters. So people will say, oh, I don't write, I just write for whoever will read. And I, well, I mean, I'm happy for anyone to read my work, but I have, a, when I'm writing, I know in my mind who, who the audience is because that impacts on the language I use whether it's children or, you know, women or if I'm writing or I'm going to speak at a community gathering, you know, in, in, in Cowra as opposed to at the State Library of Queensland perhaps. Yeah. You've um, packed a lot in and life is busy for you. 16 books. I'm you're... old. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very old. You're like young a and vibrant. Old face for radio. Yeah. Um, and you're about to do something major this weekend, which I'm going to ask you a question in a moment. But how do you, do you have any kind of non-negotiables that you've set up in, in certainly um, pushing back from busy? Because sometimes busy can become a status symbol in terms yeah. of people, you know, we're in this life and people go, oh, I'm so busy, I've got so much going on. And it's kind of an avoidant to yeah. being just here and now. Yeah. How have you navigated that? Or have you got any kind of tips and hints that you know work for you? Well, uh, for many years, so in 2003, I got a life coach and I had, because I was on boards and committees and in a job that I was not that happily with. And basically, you know, we had piles, A, B and C in terms of the things that I wanted to do. A being, this is what I want to do. B, mm, managing C, have to work out an exit strategy. And it took me some years. My my long-term goal was for, so every month we'd set short-term goals and I had long-term goals and that was to be a full-time writer. So it took me some years to get to there, but basically it was setting goals. So I'm massive, I'm huge on goal setting, 
big on lists. And if I start something or I say it publicly, I say I'm going to do something publicly, I do it. So I'm not, even if I hate it, I don't give up. So and What prompted going to a life coach? Was that a moment uh, of not feeling like you you had that in order? Yeah, or? it just, it, it, the opportunity presented itself. I wasn't quite sure where it was going to take me, but I know now. Uh, so that was 2003. I knew within by 2007 that I wouldn't have that life direction. I wouldn't have had that um, trajectory had I not had somebody help me say, you can't do that, you can't do that. At one point we sat down and looked at the calendar year for the next year and, and, and Geraldine said to me, what's what's wrong with this? And I'm going, I don't know, I've got that in there, I've got that in there, that, that. She goes, you haven't got one holiday mapped out there. So when oh. you work for yourself, <laughs> we, you know, so I envy people on the nine to five because they have weekends off and they get four weeks holiday a year and paid and they have sick leave and I had none of that. And, and so she taught me that and then we worked out a, a criteria that I would tick off. It was 10 things. If I got a phone call, can you do this gig? I'd say, right, does it does it further my writing and publishing? Does it give me back to the community? Is it paid? Uh, do I have to travel? So that was not a good thing. Um, and so I do have, uh, you know, things I tick off and um, so that I am doing things that I love doing and I'm older now and I'm more stable now so I can make choices. In, on an ethical point, I don't... I. I've made a decision many years ago that I won't do business with someone I, I wouldn't want to have in my house for dinner. So I don't care if the gig's fantastic and it's international and it's worth lots of money and I've had those offers. I'm like, I don't like you. I cannot have my brand associated with you. So I think we usually say we do have to have the not negotiables mm. and I think if I don't want you in my dinner at my dinner table, uh, I, I can't do business with I you. I love that. That's mm. such a discerning Mind you, I can't thing. cook so they wouldn't want to be at my dinner table <laughs> anyway. That's where you and I have that commonality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my kids uh, know that dinner's ready when the smoke alarm goes off. Oh, I love that. I'll put that in a book. That's fantastic. Yeah. Mum, dinner's That's ready. Right. Um yeah, I love that. So actually getting clear on and yeah. almost having that checklist, does it fit this, does it fit that? And if it comes close to that, and maybe even the last you know, one is if I still don't want to do it, that's yeah. okay as well. And I think, I mean, my father said to me, and I've never, ever forgotten this, he said to me, Anita, if you want to sweep the streets and that's what makes you happy, that's what you do. Because so many people get up every day and they go to work and they hate their job, but they have bills and children and school fees and so forth. And I never, ever forgot that. And so, you know, I'm looking for a life partner and I'm thinking, and I always remember that I don't care what job he's got, if, as long as at the end of the day, he's not complaining about the job, about work, then he's happy, whatever he's doing. And because my father was a carpenter and loved what he did and he never complained about it. And so I think it's a luxury because so he's right. And I'm around people constantly who, who are complaining, but they, we make choices and they have, you know, you either want more money. I mean, I left academia on a lot of money to have nothing to write bad poetry, <laughs> but I had two hours a day that I wasn't driving and I was sleeping more and I was happier. So, but I don't have, I don't have kids and all that sort of thing. But make that choice around yes, if yes, this choice, is what yeah. I'm going to do, yeah. either get the most out of it yeah. or go somewhere else. Yeah. I love that, um, yeah, example that he obviously had because so often people talk about their work and it's woe is me and yeah. and all of the rest. But yeah, So yeah. when I go to schools, oh, not, it's different now to what it was 20 years ago when I'd visit schools and I would say to children, if you want to be a train driver, because they may have been the first kid in their family to have a job. If you want to be a train driver, a bus driver, that's absolutely fine. If that's what you want to do, 
let's find out how you become a train driver because, you know, I was talking to children whose families may, you know, generations of families may have had negative relationships with the education system. So it was a big deal that they were whatever. And But now, you know, it's, everybody wants to be an astronaut and pilot and God knows what. So, but I think nurturing, particularly in young people, to follow their dreams. If, if you have a dream and you can turn it into a living, that's great. So this weekend, mm-hmm. you're about to do something pretty exciting, something mm-hmm. that you have been training for uh, for a long time. You're heading out to Uluru to run the marathon. My first and quite likely my last <laughs> marathon. I've done, I've done about, I don't know, I've done quite uh, eight maybe or nine half marathons. And I went to Uluru last year and did the half marathon and I had no intention of going back. But I now manage the Epic Good Foundation, uh, which is national but based in Brisbane. And our big project for this year, or one of our projects, is to take some Bee River Hawks players from Catherine, where, uh, which we support. Um, and we've got a team of people and about 20 running to raise money for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. But they're all doing the half marathon and um, all the... 6K and I'll be running the full, but there's a group of Aboriginal women from WA and Mel Victoria where they're all flying up and we'll all do it together. So it's I, I'm very excited. I've been training since January 1, um, dropped five kilos and I feel everybody says, yeah, race ready. Apparently that's the terminology. I just want to finish. <laughs> just get over the line. 42.2. Have you thought about what your first meal's going to be? Because that's the important piece. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because sometimes, like, when you do your long runs, you don't actually feel like eating straight away. I haven't been drinking alcohol. I've been drinking, well, I've been drinking zero alcohol beer, which is zero alcohol, no calories, no carbs, no sugar, no taste, um... But it's great. It's like a little ceremony. You have a you have so like it's a beer without it's alcohol. It's beer oh with God. alcohol, and you just have it in a nice glass, and it's you have the placebo effect going on. Mm-hmm. So you can still have ceremony. Oh, I'm going to have a cocktail mm-hmm. at the end of the race. Oh, I'm thinking probably a burger and fries. I, mean, I think really big hamburger and fries. And um, so I'm looking forward, I'm actually looking forward to not having to get up in the morning and run, <laughs> really, just staying in bed till 7 o'clock or something like that. It's all consuming, isn't it? It's obs- and it's run. an obsession. And your friends are bored with it. They're bored. <laughs> My brother says to me, are you still talking about running? I switched <laughs> off five minutes ago. But it's a good obsession. Huge achievement. And um, by the time this comes to air, you yeah. would have would have done it and had that cocktail and, and burger and fries. So Yay. That's exciting. Tell me a little bit about the... Indigenous Literacy Foundation that you're supporting as part of this. So I'm a lifetime ambassador. It was set up by Susie Wilson, who's the owner of Riverbend Books in Balimba. She woke up one day and saw the statistics around Indigenous literacy and thought, oh my God, I make my living out of people's capacity to read. What can I do? Set up a reader's challenge that was local in Queensland and then it's turned into the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. Our patron is Quentin Bryce. We have our lifetime ambassadors like Andy Griffiths and Kate Grenville. Uh, We've got David Maloof, Josh Pike, um, Jared Thomas. Um, And so the foundation is an NGO, not-for-profit, in my view, doing the work that the government should do. Like every Australian child should have access to literacy resources. But basically they've put over 200,000 books into 230 remote communities nationally uh, through three ways. One is uh, direct book supply. So the book industry is a partner and books are made available at cost on the ground, um, literacy workers work with communities to choose the books. So we're just not dumping books and they're brand new books because we think our kids should have new books. Mm. 
Um, and then there's that's one channel. We also have something called Book Buzz, which are ba- a little um, a backpack with board books in for infants, so under five because what research had found is many kids were had never had a relationship with books before they got to school. So now we have people on the ground who become mentors and they read to the young children and, and so forth um, so that there is this nurturing. Many Some of those books are bilingual, so and, and the, which leads me to the third arm of, of uh, the ILF, which is community literacy projects. So I think we've published 66 books and, as I say, some of them are bilingual and or, or just in language, we've, like the Hungry Little Caterpillars in uh, Walpuri, I think, as well. So okay. it's taking well-known books and then um, translating them because there's research that shows if you can read and write your first language, it's easier to learn a mm-hmm. second language. And some of these kids have English as a third or fourth language. And my own personal view is you can't, if you can't read in the English language in Australia as an Indigenous person, what that means is you are relying on non-Indigenous people to make decisions for you in key areas of your life. And that is not self-determination. And so if once we are self-determined as individuals and build up our skills, then as a community of peoples, we can work towards greater self-determination and having control over our lives. So I, it's it's interesting because everywhere I go and um, just as an ambassador and talk, people go, right, they're, they're appalled at the statistics and it's like, what can we do? How can we help? And so... Indigenous Literacy Day is the first Wednesday of September every year and there's events all around Australia. There's a massive event at the Sydney Opera House and schools hold book swaps where kids will bring in their their favourite book and they'll swap it for a gold coin. So what happens is it nurtures this love of reading with young people and raises some money. So we're raising awareness and you'll see, I've had librarians say, oh, it won't work. And then kids just get right into it because they're going, oh, that's my book. Oh, I brought that one in and then I'll talk about it. And so it's a highly successful way of getting young Australians particularly talking about the importance of reading. But we also just did this over at University of Queensland recently. So we'll be doing two more there and I'm doing one in Canberra at the university down there in September because adults read too and they've got more money and... So it's great to be sharing those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's such a, a unifying um, the love of reading. I think. Of, yeah, I think if you, like I, the, the the catchphrase is, and I'm I'm put there's a group on Facebook called uh, Australian uh, Binder of Australian Women Writers. So I put my Everyday Hero page in there the other day, and I said, "Good morning, writers, you deadly women writers. Can you imagine your world without books? Neither can I." So let's get some books into the hands so that everybody can enjoy the love of reading. And I think, you know, all Australian kids should be able to escape to a different galaxy or or read about their own country and so forth. And um, I think we take it for granted. We I know we take it for granted in cities. We live in, in here in Brisbane. We've got the best state library in the country. And, um, you know, these books go to communities where there's no library. There's no books in homes. There's no school libraries are limited and, you know, we we can fix that. And that important component of that, um, the ability for them to be bilingual or to mm. have um, some of their own language actually Im- involved in that. I'm almost thinking I'd love my kids to actually yeah. see some of that language yeah. in those books coming back the other way as well. Cool. Um, which would be a really, yeah, fascinating kind of concept. Yeah. 
Um, so we'll put all those links Excellent. Uh, so that you people can buy can those books as well. Good. Yeah, awesome. What's next for you in terms of your kind of creative pursuit? I'm um, sure you've got concepts for other books, but yes. is there other areas where yeah. you kind of express your creativity? Not well... I'd lo- I mean, I'd love to see Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossoms turned into a feature film or a TV, telemovie or even a stage play and would like to help. It's not my school base, but I'd like to see that happen. I'm currently a research, a postdoc fellow at University of Canberra working on a fantastic project up at Santa Teresa. Ginger Porter is the name of the community outside of Alice Springs. And the kids there have written this gorgeous book and illustrated by, or it's illustrated by themselves, but with the guidance of Lisa Carmichael, who is a Kondamooka woman from Stradbroke Island. And she um, is... She's a saltwater woman living up in young girl living up in Alice at the moment. So I said, let's do something together. And I would like to. And we're going to launch the book in September up in Alice and down in Canberra. And I would love to roll that out right across the country. Just do that over and over again to see kids understand document their own stories about what they love, about where they live, about their friendships, about reminding us adults that happiness is sometimes in the most simplest things in life, um, but also teaching them the process of creating a book. And we've, they don't know this, but we've just designed, Galimba have designed these beautiful T-shirts with the cover on it and it says, I'm an author. Mm-hmm. So on a launch day, they'll get it. And they're just in sixth grade. And, you know, so that's what brings me joy. So if I could just roll that out, if anybody's listening and they want to help me roll this out across the country, I, would just, I could just do that forever. I love that concept of just even getting getting our kids to write their story yeah. and as a, a, adults sharing our own story because yeah. often we, we wait until afterwards or we diminish that yeah. as well. But if they can see us doing that, absolutely, that's powerful too. Yeah. And then they get to hold something. And I remember I worked with kids at La Perouse in 2004. Oh, my goodness. We're all getting so much older. And then they went to high school. And then I had an Australian author say to me, oh, I was at such and such high school today and I walked in and said, we're going to, you know, do some creative writing. And the kids said, oh, we've already written a book with Anita Heiss. So <laughs> what else have you got? self-esteem goes, <laughs> and it's all part of the process too in terms of creating self-esteem and making kids know that they can, they can do it and their stories are worthwhile. That, you know, it's just perseverance. Like any writer needs to persevere. Yeah, sticking with it. So, Anita, the name of this podcast is called Stand Out Life. When I offer that term up to you, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Well, I'm going to just give you back my own little hashtag, and that is that I'm living the best life I can. Beautiful. Is that okay? Perfect. My standout life is just doing, living it as good as I can. Awesome. It's been so lovely to connect and chat today. Thank you for having me. This is great. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.